0: This is the Radio Book Club, Hardback Radio, KZMU 90.1, 106.7 FM. Joined by Jesse Magleby from the Grand County Public Library and moi from Back of Beyond Books. Good evening, Jesse.
1: Good evening, everyone. How are you, Andy?
0: We're doing pretty good. We were just commiserating that our partner in crime, uh, Sherry Zollinger, is flying to Hawaii and we're feeling a little put out, although I must thank everyone for stepping in for me last month when I was out in Southern California for some business, did a couple of antiquarian book fairs. So that wasn't vacation, And so you, you can't rag on me too much. But Sherry Zollinger is going to Hawaii, and
1: <sighs> we're yeah. up here working. And it's kind of cold in the studio, and Moab is extra cold. And we had this tantalizing glimpse of spring weather about a week and a half ago. So today, it feels just a little extra cruel.
0: And Sherry's going to Hawaii. Did I mention she's going to Hawaii?
1: To Hawaii.
0: Yeah, which led to some discussion prior to going on the air of, of holiday reading, or what do you read when you're on vacation, and... Well, let's start with Jesse, because I need to formulate an answer to that spur-of-the-moment <laughs> question.
1: Well, uh, if we started by saying that Sherry had better at least come back with some good beach read recommendations, and Andy observed that he had never read, taken a book to read on the beach. When he's on the beach, he's doing beach things, I guess.
0: Well, I, I think the last time I was at it, at the beach to go to the beach was probably about 35 years ago <laughs> yeah. on the, the Eastern shore, in New Jersey. Burr. And before that growing up in Southern California, I went to the beach a lot, but little kids you're out, you know, uh, uh, surfing. Well, I didn't surf, but body surfing and watching the girls and doing what, you know, 12 year old boys do on a beach. So no, reading has never been something I associate with the beach and yet the beach read is actually almost a genre. Yeah. So and yeah. When was the last time you were on a beach reading?
1: Well, it has been a while. So it's fair to expand this genre perhaps to vacation reads. What do you what do you look for in a book when you are going to be traveling or in between travels? Um lying by a pool, long, lazy days, maybe what kind of book appeals to you. And there's definitely a type that I have found that works, works best for me. So I need tell something that is extremely fast paced that I can read in short chunks. I'm often distracted people watching, uh, when you're traveling, you're always interrupted by, by announcements and having to move around and whatnot. So, um, a certain kind mm-hmm. of book, doesn't usually work as well for me. Something that takes a lot of focus and concentration. Um, something with probably complex language, complex <laughs> philosophy, maybe. I um, Unless it's a, unless it's something of rereading. Patrick O'Brien's um, Aubrey Maturin novels, I've taken those on vacation to reread because they're such a pleasure and everyone is such old friends of mine in those books that it's like falling into something quite comfortable. So... But often these days I look for a a fun thriller or something with some suspense and something that's pretty snappy and fast-paced. You're
0: okay. That's more what I'm looking for. Yeah, I'm I'm going back into time as to the last time I grabbed a whole stack of books, and I suppose uh, last summer I did so, and we were staying up in uh, Washington State, and I ended up going to a bookstore in. Port Angeles Washington a very good bookstore and I bought a bunch of regional titles nonfiction and fiction so I kind of immersed myself in that that region nice yeah kind of make it feel like home I suppose so that was a, a mixture of fiction and nonfiction I go back to my honeymoon which was an interesting time in that we scored a a house in an inholding in Yosemite national park. Wow. And I took the big fat Roberto Bolaño, his last novel, it must've been a thousand pages. Yeah. And you were saying fast paced, snappy, easy to read. Well, this thing was about as dense and thick as, as anything. And yet I just, I had the time and we just sat on the porch and we would make our coffee. We would read We'd make some lunch, we would read, we would make some dinner, we would read. And I've never done that before.
1: You guys had a reedy moon. I love it. We did.
0: And then I got pneumonia and almost died. But that's oh. another story. Sorry, Mars. <laughs> oh. um, yeah, for another time. <laughs> so, uh, Yeah, reading is such a joy. And to have long stretches is such a, a an experience that I don't get very often any longer. And I don't know why I don't... S- breakout time to do that but uh, we don't seem to but I also look at when I'm traveling the audiobook much differently than I would a book I'm going to read and this segues very nicely into some books that we're reading and we're going to get to that in just a second but when I'm in the car I listen to those quicker uh mostly fictional Mm -hmm. sometimes uh suspenseful sometimes love stories books I would never read at home and so that's a different type of reading that I enjoy as the audiobook
1: yeah that's an interesting that's an interesting point Um, listening to a book can be such a different experience and for me, I don't usually drive long distances these days. I have not done a bunch of outer town traveling to Salt Lake or Grand Junction mm-hmm. like I normally would this past few years. So, my uh, listening uh, stretches of time are very short—ten minutes here, fifteen minutes here around town, right? So you're going to lose a lot of continuity yeah, and it's a hard to style concentrate on, yes. on the theme of the
0: book. Yeah, yeah, definitely.
1: Yeah, some work really well
0: for that. And the pandemic has certainly changed our reading habits and, and what we're reading, when we're reading, how we're reading. Yeah. It's changed everything, as you well know. Well, Jesse, you're with the Grand County Public Library, and we're always curious to know what's going on at the library. So what do you have on deck?
1: well um as uh, some of you probably know last week grand county council council lifted the mask mandate so uh wearing face masks inside the library and other government buildings is now merely optional that's made a lot of people happy and uh so that is a big change the library is um has been fully open since last what last june i think and um it is picking up. We had a we had a really busy day today, in fact, and it's just a joy. I had a big pack of kids and moms and dads in the kids' room playing and reading this afternoon. It was such a lovely thing to see. And um, there is not uh, going to be any library programming during the month of March, but we are using this month to gear up for April, May, and beyond, where we do have some wonderful events um, lining up. We will be inviting a poet named Nancy Tuckox. Um, she lives a little little ways to the north of us. She Up has in just Wellington, published, I believe. Yeah, yeah, she has just published a, a lovely book of poems called Dearest Water, and I'd love to read you one of those a little bit later. We're going to invite her. <clears throat> Nancy will be here in May, on the fifth of May. Um there's another author that we're inviting in April, Elizabeth Lava has just uh written and published a book called Stillness and Wilderness: A Bold Ride from Despair to Deep Wisdom and Love. She's going to talk about her own journey from despair um and how she has how she has learned and come through this and how she can um what she's learned can help others and we are really excited to have Elizabeth Lava coming in April and at the end of May if the weather cooperates we are going to have an outdoor movie screening of a fabulous movie called My Octopus Teacher which is a documentary about a man who begins to dive every day Um, I think he's off the coast of Chile And he encounters and befriends an octopus, and slowly, she shows him what her world is like, and he um, he begins to to grow and understand all kinds of new new things about interspecies friendships. Um, Anyway, if anyone um, hasn't seen that yet, it's just it's just an exquisitely beautifully filmed and moving um, film. Science, some science, some philosophy. Just really fascinating film. So we do have some things coming up, um, April, May, and beyond. So stay tuned for more.
0: Thank you, Jesse. Down at Back of Beyond Books, we too list lifted our mask mandate pretty much along the lines of what the CDC, uh, their new guidelines <laughs> recommended on a county-by-county basis, which, of course, has corresponded with a pretty good drop in uh, positive cases in Grand County, although it's still out there. So uh, we still encourage our customers to socially uh, distance themselves and uh, wear masks if you feel uh, the need to. Uh, We will be extending our hours starting this weekend, probably on Saturday, and we will be open until 9 p.m., so 9 to 9, seven days a week. And it feels good to kind of get back to what we think of a normal routine. We weren't open in the evenings until midsummer last year. So we're still feeling, feeling out what feels comfortable uh, to us. And along those lines were events and we still haven't felt like we wanted to host in-store events, but we are planning on uh, hosting Milan Dressler, who's a castle Valley uh, resident and she has just published her third, uh, ghost story and it's called Our Eyes at Night. It takes place in and around Moab and she has just begun her nationwide tour back in North Carolina and so we may have her up here at the next radio book club but we will also have an event at Back of Beyond Books and you can check out uh, place and time for that event on the website backofbeyondbooks.com So things are moving forward here in moab both at the library and at back of beyond books and you have tuned in to the radio book club on your community radio station kzmu we're joined by jesse magleby of the grand county public library your your official title is adult program
1: of adult services Cer- Head adult, of adult services mm-hmm. yeah excellent
0: mm-hmm. Another thing we like to do on the Radio Book Club is kind of run down what some of the best-selling uh, books and what some of the uh, most often-checked-out books are at the library. And sometimes they correspond and sometimes they don't. But it's kind of interesting. Uh, looking down the list, this is from primarily independent booksellers throughout the country. Uh, we see that uh, Amanda Gorman's book, call us what you carry is still on the bestseller list she was the uh, poet that spoke at uh, the inauguration of president biden about a year ago and uh, this is her second book of, of poetry and i think i saw that you brought a copy of that with so we may get to hear a little bit more about amanda gorman uh, we see that Isabel Allende's latest novel, Violetta, is uh, creeping up the bestseller list. Anthony Doerr's Cloud Cuckoo Land is still on the bestseller list. It was one of the bestselling books during the holidays. But let's maybe revisit Luis Erdrich's The Sentence. Excellent. This is a book that I ran through about three months ago and in, in a day or two and then jesse you mentioned that you had just picked it up so what is your thoughts on the sentence
1: i think louise knocked it out of the park with the book the sentence uh took me a few months to get around to reading it but um i could not put it down i think i read it over a saturday and part of a sunday loved it the all of the characters in that book felt like my dear friends and people um people that i cared about um I'll I'll set the story up for you a little bit. So Louise Erdrich, the author, has been writing books for decades, and she also owns a bookstore in Minneapolis called Birchbark Books. And so this takes place. The story and the sentence takes place loosely based on her bookstore. There's even a character Louise that pops into the story vaguely here and there. Yes, Um,
0: it's pretty autobiographical mm -hmm. in a fictional sense. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Although there is also a ghost. Speaking of ghosts. Yeah,
1: so our main character is named Tukey. She works at the bookstore. She's married to a marvelous man named Pollux. I kind of had a literary crush on her husband. Um, (laughs) (laughs) On both of them, truly. They were such great characters. Tukey's had a little bit of a checkered past. She did some time in prison for... Uh, a crime that was way over-exaggerated and inflated. Uh, but nevertheless, she did some hard time for that. Meanwhile, unbeknownst to her, Pollux was working behind her to get her sentence reduced. He, I uh, should mention, was the, her arresting officer. Yeah. Let's... <laughs> <laughs> but he cared complicated, about her. <laughs> complicated past. Yeah. He cared about her. And when she was released early... He, uh, they met up and fell in love and, and, um, he asked her to marry him. So that's, that's a years in the past. And they are now navigating, uh, navigating life as the pandemic starts to shut things down as, um, also the store is rocked by the fact that their least favorite, well, the most annoying, their most annoying customer has, has passed away, um, and it's a, and has begun to haunt the store, especially Tuki, who's very, very sensitive to such things. And the sentence, the title of the book refers not only to uh, Tuki's prison sentence, but to this book, this manuscript that may be responsible for this one woman's death. This one, there may be a sentence in that book with the power to kill, or at least that person, and um, I won't go into that too much. It's not a really, uh, it, it's not, it's, I was going to say, it's not a really a woo-woo story, but there is a little bit of the supernatural involved, and it does get rather intense at one point when she, when the ghost that's haunting her mm-hmm. gets stronger and stronger and uh, is trying to get across um this closure that needs to happen. Meanwhile, the pandemic shuts everything down. The bookstore goes to working, uh, doing you know, take pickup, um, uh, curbside pickup, and then the George Floyd murder happens, and the whole city of Minneapolis, as we know, is completely rocked by by that upset and the riots. And um, this novel dealt with all of these topics that we've all been grappling with and trying to understand in such a clear and compassionate and clear-eyed way. I feel like this is the first novel I've read that references the pandemic in our recent, you know, year or two, past year or two, with any kind of satisfactory fullness. Um, I read Gary Steingart's Our Country Friends the the uh week or the month before and that was touted as the first pandemic literary novel and it may may have been the first but um I didn't find it nearly as moving or interesting or charming or delightful as Louise Erdrich's The Sentence. Um she her her previous couple of books didn't really didn't really get me that excited but this one i would give a 10 out of 10 she's back to back to her her old chops like um tracks and love medicine and the beat queen and her that's her what my thought was that, was those mm.
0: earlier novels that we all read 20 25 years yeah. ago that i fell in love with her writing yeah. it just seemed like it was she hadn't left yeah. and it just felt it was sensitive and and perfect for the times. I
1: agree. That's yeah. my I think that's my pandemic novel. Beautiful. My Favorite one so far. Yes.
0: Thanks, Jesse. Mm-hmm. Well, a couple of interesting picks that I want to throw out to our listening audience, and they're both novels. I think it was three or four uh, months ago that I said, "Oh, I don't read novels, and I can't find good novels," <laughs> and I was really throwing a rant about why why. I'm not picking up these novels that, that work well for me. And so things have changed. Tell me in surprising ways. Well, I picked up the novel damnation spring mm-hmm. and this was based on no one's recommendation other than the fact that it's another novel about trees. You know, Richard powers, did uh, tree novels and, um, uh, but Damnation Spring takes place in the old growth forests of Northern California. It's a debut novel by Ash Davidson, who actually uh, is a relative local. She went to, sc- I believe, she went to school in Flagstaff, Northern Arizona University, but she definitely lives in Flagstaff and works for the Grand Canyon Trust. And apparently she would work on this novel before and after hours and probably drove the trust staff crazy as they heard all about the struggles of a a debut novelist. But she grew up in Arcata, California, in the midst of the redwoods. And as you know, there is scant little old growth timber left. Most of it is uh, protected in, in state and national parks but we need to go back to the 70s when when there was still more old growth and that's when the the novel takes place and it's a a family who's lived on the land for you know 50 60 years and all they've known for three generations is logging their entire being is based on taking out old growth timber and getting it uh, to the mill And the protagonists are Colleen and Rich Gunderson. And when Rich Gunderson has the opportunity to purchase a 700-acre plot uh, pretty much behind their house, which, by the way, their house is an inholding now within the National Park, and the family will relinquish control of their house once they die. Uh, And so this is, to Rich Gunderson, his last chance to uh, be who he is, which is a a logger. And so he purchases this timber, but he can't get to the timber because there's no roads going to it, and he's relying on an adjacent grove of land to be cut, which the the, the large corporation owns, and that would then allow him to get to his land. And so there's that struggle, and then there's the struggle of his wife, Colleen, who is a unlicensed midwife who has begun to see disturbing trends of stillbirths and uh, deformities in and around this community at a much higher percentage than is normal. And you have the forces of the economics of trying to feed their families and uh, the use of pesticides, and all of this comes together in in a way that, as an environmentalist myself, I'm screaming that I don't want this timber cut, and yet because Rich Gunderson's entire being, every breath he takes is to get this timber out, I was just so conflicted unlike any novel I've read in a long, long time. Mm, wow. And I wanted the family to succeed badly. hmm And, yeah, it was beautiful. It was terrifying. It was sobering. I've talked to two or three other folks who have read the novel who weren't as excited about it as I, but it's one of those novels that just has stuck with me. And... Every turn, just when you think you know what's going to happen, Ash Davidson takes you on a, a U-turn or a left turn, mm-hmm. and you just never quite knew what was what was coming, just when you, you were sure what was going to happen, and then it, it didn't happen. Wow. And then you throw in a young uh, Native American who's returned to his community in Northern California as an environmental scientist, and it turns out that that he and Colleen used to be lovers, and so there's this this old kindled love story and a new love story, and you throw it all together and it's an intense, i think brilliant novel.
1: Wow, what a great recommendation what a powerful what a powerful book that to um to make you feel. Uh, another person's with a different with a different point of views experience that deeply.
0: Yeah, and I, I you that's... know, I'm old enough to remember the spotted owl controversy and yeah. when that mm-hmm. uh, singular species of bird pretty much stopped logging in its tracks and yeah. left many many uh Pacific Northwest communities out of their their entire economy.
1: Yeah. Towns. and
0: yet seeing it from afar i'm saying yeah i think the spotted owl has has a place and i think we need to preserve its habitat and yet the economic cost was was massive mm-hmm. and while spotted owl doesn't come into this story uh, it, it it's almost a similarity to what's going on here mm-hmm. so yeah really 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 liked it damnation spring by ash davidson
1: nice Well, in my car right now, I am listening to a book on CD called Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer. And I know I'm really, really late to this party, but I am enjoying this so much that I need to talk about it just a little bit. Um, For one thing, it's read by the author, Robin, who has such a musical, gentle, melodic voice. Um, I can't imagine hearing anyone else read this right now. Her voice is just so lovely. And um, this uh, the subtitle of Braiding Sweetgrass is Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teachings of Plants. Right away, in the beginning of the book, she talks about uh, she grew up loving plants, loving nature, loving the outdoors, and she wanted to study it and learn more. She um, goes away to college, and her early advisor um is kind of dismissive of her she wants to understand the beauty and the science of of plants and nature and he says well that's not scientific at all if you want to understand the beauty you should just go be an artist and she disagrees she talks about the exquisite colors of goldenrod and purple asters together. And just why is that so pleasing? And why does that, those colors together feel so right? And her, and, uh, you know, her advisor argues that that's completely unscientific and she's going to have to leave that alone if she wants to be a science, a proper scientist. Well, I am delighted to tell you that she does not leave it alone. And there is science behind why those colors are pleasing to us, and why why certain plants work well together and others don't. Um, she says here, she describes bra- what braiding sweetgrass is like. And sweetgrass, she is um, a
0: column of light street.
1: She is writing about the tradition of braiding grass. Um, And this this is these braids are never, ever sold. This is only a gift. It's a gift from the earth and that the braid is a gift to other people. And she says, I offer a braid of stories meant to heal our relationship with the world. This braid is woven from three strands, indigenous ways of knowing scientific knowledge and the story of an Ashinabiqui scientist trying to bring them together in service to what matters the most it is an intertwining of science spirit and story old stories and new ones that can be medicine for our broken relationship with earth a pharmacopoeia of healing stories that allow us to imagine a different relationship in which people and land are good medicine for each other that little tidbit is just part of the introduction
0: it's a remarkable story that the book came out nine years ago and we've mentioned this on the show before, but it's truly a book for our time and maybe before it's time because the pandemic has allowed us to discover Robin Wall Kimmer, and it's quite beautiful.
1: Yeah. And I also recommend listening to it. Um, even in, in short chunks, there's so much to think about that I kind of, I kind of like walking away and having a, having a little 10-minute segment to think about during the day. Braiding Sweetgrass. Thank you for playing that, Andy.
0: I'm going to change directions entirely and dive into a novel, again, that I normally would not have read at home, but this was an audio book. And the only reason I picked this up is because of a connection to the author David Gessner, who has been out in Moab a couple of times and uh, has, he's written about Edward Abbey and Theodore Roosevelt and Bears Ears and uh, Ultimate Frisbee and a lot of subjects I like. But his spouse, uh, Nina de Gramont, is a novelist. And I noticed a post of his on Instagram or something where he he talked about her forthcoming novel. And I thought, what the heck? Let's read it. And it's called The Christie Affair. And the Christie, in this case, refers to Agatha Christie, the novelist, the the best-selling novelist, I think, still in history. And... Many people have read Agatha Christie mysteries growing up, and there's been, you know, movie adaptations and so on. But I knew nothing about Agatha Christie, nor did I know that she disappeared for 11 days. And this whole novel takes place in that 11 day disappearance in 1925 in London when she finds out, Agatha does, that her husband has taken a lover and her world is rocked and she disappears and so what Nina de Gramont has done is fictionalized what went on during those 11 days trying to piece together what we do know about Agatha Christie and Archie Christie's married marriage and perhaps why it had fallen apart and what Agatha did during these 11 days and it's it's just a lot of I almost said fun because, well, it really isn't fun when your, your marriage has just fallen apart. But it was full of intrigue, full of mystery. Uh, there's some death involved in this novel and a lot of references to the 1920s uh, London scene. And I learned so much about Agatha Christie, the writer, that I never knew. And I loved it. Again, it's a book I never would have picked up except for this, this literary connection. And sometimes that's all it takes to go out on a limb and, and try something brand new. So if you're a fan of Agatha Christie novels, you'd like it. If you're a fan of uh, 1920s uh, London scene, you would like it. If you're a fan of just uh, good writing, I think you'd really like The Christie Affair by Nina de Gramont.
1: Wow, I think I might have to put that one on my list. That sounds wonderful. I did know that about Agatha Christie. I remember my mom telling me that when I was a little girl. She loved to read Agatha Christie's. And she told me about that disappearance, and nobody's ever truly figured out that we know of what, what actually happened. There's a lot of speculation.
0: Well, that novel will... Feed that yeah. speculation.
1: Ooh, I might have to get that for my mom. That's <laughs> a
0: good you, idea. Yeah. Nice. Well, you've tuned in to the Radio Book Club on Moab's community radio station, KZMU. We're at 90.1, 106.7 FM. First Monday of the month from 5 to 6 p.m. Jesse, often Sherry, and myself review uh, what we're reading, literary events in and around Moab, and all things books. And right now, we're just going through some recent reads, and we're back to Jesse.
1: Yeah, so I am right in the middle of a new Lucy Foley novel. This one is called, it's brand new. It might be debuted on the top. It is number one on the
0: IndieBound bestseller list, The Paris Apartment. The
1: Paris Apartment. Well, this is quite a lot of fun. So this would make, uh, for example, a good vacation read, I think, this book. So uh, a young woman in her, hmm, I'm going to say her 20s, goes to visit her brother in Paris. She hasn't seen him for quite some time. He's living in a swanky apartment building in Paris. And he says, yes, come find me when you get here. I'll be waiting for you. But when she shows up at this building, he's nowhere to be seen. She finagles her way into his apartment, starts finding some odd things. She starts to meet the other tenants, the other concierge. Everybody seems to be a little cagey. And little by little, we're finding out that everybody in that building uh may have a secret that they are protecting and she slowly starts to uncover uh what's what's pot- possibly happened to her brother was he working on a a story as a journalist that uh somebody's trying to keep quiet um did he start hanging out with the wrong crowd what exactly is happening so this is a very complexly um laid out story in that we get um Chapters, points of view from all these different characters. There are probably uh, six or seven, I want to say, main characters besides this younger sister um, who all tell us little bits from their point of view. And it's Lucy Foley's done a really, really good job of giving you just enough information to keep it really intriguing. The building itself is practically a character. It's got a creaky old elevator. It's got Uh, six or seven stories with a penthouse on the top and a roof garden. It's got um, old passageways hidden in the walls from back when there were uh, maids and staff living in this grand house. There are a lot of interesting secrets. Everybody can kind of see into everybody else's apartment through the courtyard windows. Everybody's everybody's got something to hide. So I can recommend this book. I know it's going to, I know it's going to, um, it's going to end in in a very, an interesting and un, (laughs) and I, an un, uh, an unusual way. I predict i read Lucy Foley's previous book, which was called the guest list a year or two ago. That one was pretty good. I'd probably give it four out of five, but I think the Paris apartment, uh, it's definitely got got my got me intrigued, and uh, I'll have this one done pretty quick. I think this would make a great vacation read.
0: And the Paris apartment is the current uh, Reese's book club pick. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. And do you know what the previous one was? The Christie affair. Well, how about that? And I would have never thought that I would pick up a oh, Reese's Reese. book club. Now. You know Reese Witherspoon. We all know the actor. uh Maybe has played a few serious roles, but certainly has played some less than serious roles. And yet she has actually turned into a literary juggernaut of a a leader. Yeah. We all think of Oprah and her book club, but uh, they're very very different in what in the books that they pick. But Reese has certainly. Uh, gotten some cred Mm -hmm, through through her book club so it's kind of interesting we picked two of Reese's book (laughs) club picks in a row well I'm going to go into some nonfiction, which is usually what I like to read and I'm going to do a twofer if you'll allow me to as many of you know I'm immersed in the world of rare and collectible books and ephemera and so whenever there's a book about book collecting I am want to pick it up and there were two recently that came out. One is called The Department of Rare Books and Special Collections by Eva Jurczyk, J-U-R-C-Z-Y-K. And the second is The Last Bookseller, A Life in the Rare Book Trade by Gary Goodman. And I'm going to start with Gary Goodman's first in that I I related to it perhaps a little bit more Um I mentioned these are nonfiction. The, the Department of Rare Books and Special Collections is fictional, and the last bookseller is nonfiction, let's be clear. Uh, Gary Goodman was a, an antiquarian book dealer in the Twin Cities and in um, a small town in Wisconsin for uh, the last 20 years or so, and he helped form what was called a book town in this uh, small town. I think it was, um, if I re. Remember, right, um, Hudson, Wisconsin, and he uh, got his start in Stillwater, uh, Minnesota. And each chapter is a, a story of, of him selling uh, rare and collectible books from uh, a, his very first store in a very poor neighborhood in Minneapolis to founding this St. This Croix uh, book town. In Wisconsin, and so if you like to to hear about the trade, in in all its warts, uh, Gary Goodman does a good job. Uh, It's not a great book, I don't think, but he says he's the last bookseller, and that's not true. You know, there's thousands of us out there still plying the rare book trade, but he kind of did it by starting with nothing and working up, and. One of the trends within the rare book trade is a lot of the book dealers start with money. You know, there's the old saying is, how do you make a million dollars in the rare book trade as you start with two million? <laughs> and that's true in many ways. So he was kind of the uh, the opposite. He started with nothing and worked his way up into a comfortable living. And so it, I, I enjoyed it. There's no two ways about it. But um, would I highly recommend it? Eh, maybe not. Would I recommend it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. The second book, the Department of Rare Books and Special Collections, Eva Jersik's novel, I bought simply because of the title. Uh, Special collections are what is known as within the university when a university starts uh, collecting books or ephemera uh, for specific reasons, usually within their... Uh, curriculum at their university and so for instance utah state university has just started a uh, tract of classes on outdoor recreation and part of that is their special collections librarians has been buying old catalogs of climbing rafting canoeing camping all of the old um the companies like Early Patagonia and Shenard and um, so on, they would put out these catalogs, and they're, they're collecting them to use within the curriculum in teaching outdoor recreation. I'm not explaining this very well. So special collections and, and Department of Rare Books, and most rare book dealers sell a lot of material to universities in their special collections. And maybe I didn't like this novel too much because it kind of struck near and dear to what has happened within the rare book trade in a famous case back in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, just in the last four years, when one of the more renowned and respected rare book dealers was arrested in concert with a special collections librarian from the Carnegie Library in, in Pittsburgh And they had been working in concert for over 20 years, stealing manuscripts and books out of the Carnegie Library. And the Special Collections librarian would sell them to this book dealer, who in turn would would put them out into the trade. And it just really put a black eye on, on the trade. And this novel, while it doesn't refer to that case, mirrors that case in many ways. Mm. And so maybe it was just a little too close to home. Mm. Um, But um, it was an interesting plot of a manuscript that the Special Collections librarian had purchased on behalf of donors of a university, and soon that manuscript disappeared. And then the Special Collections librarian died. And so his assistant has to figure out what happened. And so it, it brings in some of the, the quirks of the rare book trade and special collections within universities. But it just, for me, missed the mark overall. And I I hope that uh, she keeps writing, but I hope she does perhaps a little bit more research in terms of really understanding the, the nuance and, and the personalities within those organizations. I Hmm. think it would have been a better novel, perhaps. But it's called The Department of Rare Books and Special Collections by Eva Jersik.
1: All right. I have one more audiobook recommendation. Um, I also recently listened to a book that's been translated from the Japanese into English. And it is called The Cat Who Saved Books by Suzuki Natsukawa. Now, um, I was definitely attracted to this one because of its lovely title. And book. the cover of the book has a gorgeous print of a cat walking literally through books like someone would walk through walls with his feet in the clouds. This is a book about a teenage boy who's lived with his grandfather in his rare books and worked at his rare bookstore um, most of his life and his grandfather passes away and so um, this poor lad uh, named Rintaro is going to have to sell the store and go move away with an aunt Um, and one afternoon while he's cleaning up the bookstore a big ginger tabby cat walks in and begins to speak to him Now, before you turn off your radio, (laughs) I know that sounds (laughs) like a sappy, a cozy story, some talking cats and some books or something, but it's not that kind of book at all. It's a little more like a Haruki Murakami Mm. story, um, although although not, not quite that complex. It's a much simpler and slimmer um, story. It's a very, it's only got four four discs. Um, it's a very short little book. But this um, cat says, I'm going to need your help saving books. We're going to have to go on these, you're coming with me on this these missions. We're going to a labyrinth. And he leads him out of the bookstore. And um, lots of other stuff is going on, but Tarot and this cat, whose name is Tiger, um visit people who are in the book industry who are who are killing literature Um, one of the labyrinths involves uh, a man who is an imprisoner of books he's a pompous reader he reads a hundred books a month and has a collection of thousands and thousands of books and he's got no time for anyone because all he needs he just is going to spend his time getting that next book under his belt and uh, Rintaro has to reason with him and find out if that is the best way to read or the best way to use books. And later, another labyrinth, um, publishers are endlessly, uh, endlessly releasing new content, whether it's worth reading or not. Books are expendable. We just have to make sure they're consumed in the most efficient way possible. How do you solve this problem? Well, Rintaro and the cat seem to figure it out. There are several more puzzles and labyrinths that they go through. I'm doing a really terrible job of describing this story. It's a, it's, it's a very, it's a very um, gentle story and thoughtful. And if you can get past a talking cat, you probably would enjoy it. And it, and it leaves you with some things to think about. Why do we read? Why are books important? What should books actually do for us or to us? And um, these are all questions that are um, more or less answered um, by this, this adventure of this young man and, his, and this, this cat that just pops into his life and starts bossing him around. I really enjoyed this book, and I thought the audiobook was well done, too. This is The Cat Who Saved Books by Sosuke Natsukawa.
0: Excellent. That seems intriguing enough, and following up with two books about books. Books about books, yeah. uh, (laughs) Well done, Jesse. Very good. My next pick is a forthcoming book that was originally scheduled to be published February 1st, and it's been delayed to the end of this month, March 29th. And this is by one of our favorite quasi-local authors, Craig Childs. And Torrey House Press is publishing their second book with Craig. This is called Tracing Time, Seasons of Rock Art on the Colorado Plateau. For many out there, rock art is perhaps the greatest enigma of the Southwest, if not the world, in that what do petroglyphs and pictographs mean? And that singular question has been talked about ever since humanoids discovered uh, rock art. And that question will continue to be discussed in that um, we really can't answer that. And so what Craig Childs has done is he has gone to many rock art sites in the American Southwest with the elders of the tribal affiliations on which those rock art panels exist there you go. and has interviewed the elders as to what they think the meanings are. And it's, I think, a stroke of brilliance. Why would a, a, Anglos go out and try to interpret Native American rock art? Rather, let's listen to the elders uh-huh. speak. And so it's it's a book that you can pick up and set down because each chapter is a separate field trip, so to speak and a separate interpretation of a particular site. Ah. And Craig's not going to take you or tell you exactly where these sites are, but he he listens to the elders, and then he puts in his knowledge of the history of the land, the history of the geology, why perhaps we find where rock art where we do. But he tends to shy away in interpreting exactly what the rock art's meaning is. And I found it, intriguing. I found it uh, very thought-provoking, and I think it will continue the discussion as to what we're looking at here in the American Southwest. And of course, we're surrounded by thousands and thousands of uh, both single single pieces of rock art to panels with hundreds of, of pieces, and there's nothing more uh, fun than trying to look at them and say, I wonder what that really means Hmm. and anytime someone tells me exactly that they know 100 percent, i always step back and and i listen but i'm not sure i totally believe
1: yeah fair enough i'm really intrigued it's about time tracing time by craig childs did you tell me again when this is due i remember march 29th is now the
0: publication date got it yes cool
1: Well, that just about does it for our hour, friends. Oh, my gosh. But I do have a couple of recommendations to throw out from other library staff members and patrons. I have it on really good authority that the new translation of Beowulf is not to be missed. Maria Davana Headley has um, given us a radical new translation of Beowulf. I think it's probably the most important one since the John Gardner uh, decades ago. So I've heard that's really excellent. I've also been told that a book by Helene Turston called An Elderly Lady is Up to No Good is a good one. It's about a little old Swedish woman who uses her age to get away with some stuff. Sounds really good.
0: Well, that hour flew by Jesse. I want to thank you for spending it with us on the KZMU Radio Book Club on KZMU 89. No, that's not it. 89.7 was the call letters that we had 30 years ago. 90.1, 106.7 on the FM dial, keeping Zion musically uncensored. Thanks for listening.